Welcome to the 215 workshop, Atheists and Agnostics of the Overeaters Anonymous Region 2 Convention. My name is Peter. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this workshop. Hi, Hi everyone. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we begin, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please check again. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there is press in the room, please do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. There will be audio recordings of this workshop, which you may purchase outside in the foyer. This workshop will have speakers followed by Ask It Basket questions. During the workshop, please keep the basket moving. The topic for this session is atheists and agnostics, other routes, and the principle is autonomy. We will begin with a selection from the OA 12 and 12, pages 16 and 17. For all of us, atheists and agnostics, and religious ones alike, coming to believe was something that happened as we began taking actions which others told us had worked for them. Whether or not we believed these action would, actions would work for us didn't seem to matter. Uh, let's welcome Carmen, our first speaker, who will speak for 20 minutes. Thank you, Carmen. And uh, please start circulating the Ask It Basket around. Hi, my name is Carmen, and I am a compulsive overeater. Before we get started, um, it may not look like it, but I'm nervous. And um, so I'm going to tell you a little about my experience in my coming to believe and hopefully address um, things that you might want to hear today. Um, My story is that I came to OA... This is the Reader's Digest version. We'll need a lot more than 20 minutes. Uh, I came to OA in the early 80s. I got really thin. I followed a food plan from Dignity of Choice. I went to meetings. I listened to what they read, and then it was just the big book and the AA 12 and 12 and the AA literature. And I came to understand it through reading it and figuring it out and then telling you what I figured out. What didn't happen for me is I did not learn to work the steps and apply them to my life. I figured I understood them pretty good, and when I stood up and talked to people and shared in meetings or shared in days in a way, it was always what I thought was correct and what I read and what I thought you needed to hear. 
Consequently, about 12 or 13 years later, I moved to an area that was strong in, in recovery, who worked the steps and talked about working the steps and sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And um, I didn't have experience, strength, and hope in the steps. I, I just had my understanding. And so I felt very uncomfortable, and I couldn't connect, and I, I left. And in 1998, I returned to OA, and I will celebrate in September 18 years of abstinence, just to qualify. And in those 18 years, everything's looked different than it does today, and I expect it will look different in the future, too, because that's what I'm here for, to grow and change. So there's an area in my recovery that has to do with God. When I first came into meetings in the early 80s, I went to a couple small meetings that were not very strong, and somebody said, you need to go to a meeting where people have recovery and get a sponsor. And I thought, okay, so I went to a bigger meeting, and there was somebody sharing their story, and they kept talking about God. And I just got, it was like an anxiety attack. I had an anxiety attack. I thought, I can't listen to this. I can't do this. I can't sit here. I can't listen to this. Ego jumped in and saved my butt because it was a big room. There were lots of people in the room. And I was in the back of the room, and the only exit door was in the front of the room. And I had a big enough ego that I didn't want anybody to see me walking out. So I sat there and I listened very uncomfortably and knew the minute the meeting was done, I'd take off. They read something at the end of the meeting that I think kept me there. All I know is I heard, take what you can, leave the rest. Well, I could take a lot of what I heard about food and a lot of what I heard about the disease. I could not take God. But they told me I didn't have to. Nobody told me I had to do anything there. They just said, if I had a desire to stop eating compulsively regardless of the motive behind it, then I belonged here. And if I could just take what I couldn't leave the rest, I could stay. So I had a long journey to discovery of um, some kind of understanding of a higher power so that I wasn't doing this in self-will, continually to uh, go my way and trying to make my decisions unaided because I'd done that all my life and I never got what I needed, never got what I wanted. I always got back into the food. I was always afraid. I was always trying to do what I thought you wanted me to do so you would like me. Um, And then if I got the idea that you might not like me, I continued hammering you until you gave up in submission. That's how I had relationships. So that's who I was when I came into this program, and the God thing really bothered me. And in my first years in OA, I, don't, I never really addressed that. I just took what I could and leave the rest. Um, so part of my story is because I didn't have, wasn't grounded in the steps and I hadn't really come to, any, um, to believing anything um, beyond my knowledge and what I could get from this and what I could tell you because you needed to hear it, I left the program. So when I came back, like I said, um, first of all, I came back. Um, knowing that it was no longer about the food. I had dieted, lost some weight, 
and I knew this was not going to be the story. This was not going to. This was just going to be another round of the same old thing over and over again. That much I got. So when I came back, I got a sponsor right away. I've had several sponsors in, all of which have really helped me. But I, I would go to meetings, and I would sit there, and you would share with me about your God, your higher power, and how, how you believed, and how, how you um, had personal contact. Um, and I'd hear all this, and I thought, I don't think I can do that. I don't know how to do that. How do you do that? How do you, how do you come to that place? Um, I thought you really had something that I was incapable of having. I thought that part in the big book that talked about people who are incapable of being honest with themselves, I I changed it to, I'm incapable of having a higher power, so it's never going to happen. It's just never going to happen. I grew up um, going to a lot of churches, seeking, seeking, seeking. Um, In my college years, I... I investigated lots of different churches, seeking, seeking, seeking. Um, That's what I, well, I'll get into that later. So that's what my spiritual search was, was seeking, 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 always being disappointed. I think this is going to be briefer than 20 minutes, I know already. Anyway, um, so I I went through the first step. Powerless over food. My life is unmanageable. You didn't ask me to do anything with a God yet. And um, I did that. I went through the first three steps with a sponsor and never really came to believe but said, okay, okay, okay. I I think about it. It'll be, you know, I'll just move on. We'll see what happens. But I could never get very far. So I had this wise sponsor. When we got to the second step, she said to me, well, what is your current concept of a higher power? And I said, hell, I don't know. Excuse me, darn it, I don't know. Um, She said, well, why don't you write about it? And um, I have to watch profanity. Um, So my thought was to sit down and write. I didn't know what to write about. I had no concept of a higher power. I, I didn't. I searched and searched and searched, and I never did find one. So, um... I sat down with a piece of paper and I started writing. And when I started writing, I always start out with, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to say. I don't like this assignment. I mean, I just do everything in my power on paper not to do it. That's my process. But eventually I started writing about, well, so what is my experience and um, I, to this day, couldn't tell you ver- everything I wrote. I wrote a couple of pages. The bottom line was everything about the possibility of coming to believe in anything, um, a higher power, as they called it, was all about my experiences in searching, 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 different churches, um, coming into contact with people that... Um, expressed things that I liked that I thought were um, good and kind and loving and then I would always be disappointed and I did a lot of writing about all that and what I came to a conclusion about for me was in my writing because I didn't think this through it never works when I try and think it through 
because it's my brain doing the thinking. And I've come to understand and believe, as a result of all the work I've done, that it's not me writing in that paper. It may start out being me, because I'm pretty well self-willed, and I'm going to put down everything in my head and whatever I can do. Eventually, something comes out of that writing I didn't know was there. And I suddenly realized that all the writing I was doing was leading towards the people. The people. Organized religion. That's where my block was. And when I saw that, I go, oh my goodness. Look at that. I had no idea. So, there's a part in the big book that kind of describes me and that part of it. It's on page 50 in the big book. And it says... Instead, we looked at the human defects of these people and sometimes used their shortcomings as a basis of, I can't read my writing, of um, wholesale condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant ourselves. So that's interesting. Whether we agree with a particular approach or exception, conception seems to make little difference Experience has taught us that these are matters about which, for our purpose, we need not be worried. They are questions for each of us individually to settle for ourselves. That's what I started to do. Because the second part of that assignment was, after I wrote that, I was to write, what is a concept of a power greater than me that I could believe in? That I could even have a Mind open to the possibility of. And that's where growth is for me around spirituality and it's about around a higher power and where it fits in my life is having a mind open to the possibility. And our literature tells us that's all we need to start out with. All I need to have is a willingness to consider what could be. Now, um, now I'm scattered, but everything I say doesn't come from me, because if it did, I'd be reading a, 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 a script and you wouldn't see my eyeballs. So here we go. Uh, I forgot where I was. Give me a second. Mm. This happens when the gray hairs come. Um, so, I, I mean... What did I just say? Somebody repeat it if you can remember it. If not, we'll go on. Having an open mind. There you go. So I read uh, also something in the literature about a definition of when I don't have an open mind, and that is contempt prior to investigation. So I thought about that, and I thought, here I have ideas, my own ideas, before I even know what there is. So I decided... Okay, I'll write a description of what a concept I could believe in. Now, in my journey to this point, see if I can get back here. One of the things that was pointed out to me by many, many sponsors, and a couple in particular pretty strongly, was my lack of trust. People had let me down. You had let me down. You didn't know that. Because you didn't get up in the meetings and come over and fawn over me. So you let me down, okay? People in organized religions let me down. Um, 
So this is this is interesting. So as I moved through this, I realized that it wasn't that I didn't trust you. I didn't trust that there was a power greater than me. What if I did and it didn't exist? How disappointing that would be. How foolish I would look. So I didn't want to go any further because I had a hard time trusting. I had a hard time trusting myself. So what I did, I did this exercise because she asked me to. And um, most of my sponsors would tell you, at first I dig my heel in because there's resistance because I don't want to have to do it. And then I do it because that's the only thing that's brought me forward in anything in this program. So I started writing down, well, what, what, what's a concept I could believe in? And things came out like um, something that um, loved me no matter what, that was kind, gentle, accepting, nurturing, never left me, was there with me through everything, encouraged me, let me fall down, let me get up, never left me. Because I always worried about abandonment. So that was my big thing. And that was the beginning of a journey to be able to find some concept of something that I could now talk to and that I could maybe pray to. I said prayers before. They were what you did because everybody else did them too. But to actually pray for me and to, and to consider that there's a power outside of me. Because my whole life, if I had been that powerful, I wouldn't have been fat. I wouldn't have been eating incessantly. I wouldn't have hidden it. I wouldn't have done all the things I did with food. They were insane. So um, I came to have a mind open to the possibility that this power that has all these qualities that I needed, was there for me. Um, It's often, and and I also, it's interesting, in our program it says we choose a higher power of our understanding, not a higher power of my description. So I don't need to describe to you the details or any explanation of what my higher power is Hell, I don't even know myself if I had to describe something. I just know that it became something that was a feeling that helped me to start learning to trust, to take risks, to tell my sponsor things I told nobody and intended to go to my grave without, without some concept of a power greater than me so I wasn't having to be so in charge of everything then I could flow more freely through life than, than, and I wasn't so concerned and worried and didn't spend all my energy on something. Um, so that, in essence, is my discovery of a higher power, and it grows and changes, grows and changes all the time. Um, so I don't know if I was an agnostic. I don't think I was an atheist, although um, I didn't trust, didn't believe. So I don't know which one of these terms fits me. Um, But what I know in this program is 
nobody tells us how we have to come to believe. Nobody tells us what we have to come to believe. The only thing we have in common is we have a relationship with food that is not like normal eaters. I'm insane when it comes to my will over food. And the other thing we have in common is we found a 12-step program where we can find recovery and the solution. Everything else about this program is individual. That's it. And that's how I uh, understand it. I'm going to quote a couple things. I have a little bit of time left that, that were meaningful to me. Um, and page 46 of the big book, it says, we did not need to con- a, a consideration of another's conception of God. Our own conception was sufficient. So I believe, you believe, or you don't believe, or you have um, some a tree or uh, uh, the concept of love. It really doesn't matter. It's none of my business. It's none of anybody else's business. What I can find that keeps me moving in the steps is a power greater than me. It says, therefore, we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception. So it is individual, and it says so in the literature. Now, I have to say, first piece of literature I read was the AA Big Book, because in OA in the early 80s, there were pamphlets and then AA literature. So I read it from beginning to end, and I literally ate it up because I saw me in there. But over the years, as I've gone back to it and used it, and, and working the steps and then just working my life and being of service to um, my fellows and the people outside these rooms, I've, um, I've, okay. I keep losing my thought. I apologize. I, I don't like it. It's just jointed. But I guess you can take what you want and leave the rest too, huh? <laughs> But um, I don't know where I was going. It'll come back. But there's so much in the literature, and that's it. See, I know it comes back. Um, It got to where I would get more detailed about what I read, and I would read things about God that were uncomfortable for me. So you know what I did with it? I took what I wanted, and I left the rest. Because within the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, within... The OA 12 and 12 and AA 12 and 12. There is language that makes me uncomfortable or I can't really say speaks to me. But if I continue in the literature, I find something that speaks to me. I find something I can feel comfortable with. And I found over the last 18 years, I get more comfortable with more things more often. Now, it is not my experience um, to not have, or or it's not, I don't know if atheism is my experience. But I read something recently that I really loved, and it talked about when working with, oh, my time is up. I'm going to say this real quick. When working with people who don't believe in God, a good question for me to ask myself, and for us to ask them, because I sponsor, is what do you believe in? And sometimes it's love, beauty, Justice, a lot of concepts that we all take in 
And if that sits and it becomes part of what we can believe in, it's a beginning. It's a beginning. So there's a lot unsaid here today because I had 40 minutes to talk. No, 40 minutes. But I also want to tell you, I was scared to do this. I didn't want to do it. I was asked to do it. I said yes, and then I tried to figure out how to get out of it. So if you get nothing from me today in here, know that I came in here very nervous, worried about what I would say, and I got up here, and I did it. And that's not me. Thank you, Carmen. Um, Please keep the Ask It basket moving around, and if you need more paper... Let me know. I have some up here that can be used. And our second speaker is Anya, who will also speak for 20 minutes. Hi. (laughs) My name is Anya. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater and a recovered bulimic. Hi. And I say recovered because... uh, I know with 100% certainty that I will never be bulimic again. I haven't been bulimic for over 25 years. And uh, it was a different person. It was a different person. To be bulimic takes a level of desperation combined with ignorance. And I will never have the ignorance part again. So So let me just say that uh, my mother both of my grandmothers and my great-grandmother, whom I didn't know but have photos of, were all obese women. My daughter is healthy and happy and beautiful and does not have this disease. And I am incredibly grateful to OA for breaking the chain of many generations. Anybody here who has a child, there's nothing better you can do for your child than recover. Nothing. So uh, when I came into OA, uh, what happened was I had, been in, I had been in Weight Watchers. It was my third time through. Every time I lost the weight, first time I lost the weight, I gained it back again very quickly. And it was horrible. I gained it back ten times faster than it took me to lose it. So years went by. I was so demoralized before I tried it again. Second time, I got down to my goal weight. And as I started to gain weight again, I totally panicked. And that's when I tried bulimia because I thought, because I didn't know how to maintain. I thought bulimia was a maintenance, you know, method. And um, what happened was I still gained the weight back just more slowly and with a lot more self-loathing than I'd ever had before. So a few more years went by before I was willing to try that again. Finally, a third time, I went back and I said to myself, this is it. I will never do this again. If this doesn't work this time, I'm just going to be fat and content. I'm just not going to put myself through this again. But, of course, the same thing happened because I was the same person. But, fortunately, in the back of the room, and in those days, in the mid-'80s, Weight Watchers used to weigh everybody publicly. You knew exactly whether people had gained weight or lost weight that week. And um, there was this one woman in the back of the room who'd been on maintenance the whole time. And uh, so I said to her, how do you do this? I just, I cannot understand how you do maintenance. And she said to me, I only come here for a food plan. I get all my support from Overeaters Anonymous. 
And I said, what's that? And she reached in her purse, and she gave me a meeting list. I, that was an angel in my life, is all I can say. And I went to a meeting one hour later, <laughs> and I have never looked back. And um, I have to tell you that what kept me going was not the God stuff, because I was an atheist from a childhood. I was an atheist. My parents sent me to Sunday school when I was six, and I started learning these Bible stories. I thought, that cannot be true. And what really disturbed me was I couldn't tell if the grown-ups were trying to trick us or if they really believed it. Because if they believed it, then I thought they were crazy. And if they tricked us, then I thought they were evil. And it was one or the other. It was a horrible confusion for a little kid. Um, I never believed in God I never took it seriously. I never was really interested in it. I was interested in other people's belief in God, oddly enough, just from an intellectual point of view, but not the idea of taking it seriously as some sort of reality, no way. So I come into OA, and um, when I found out that uh, it depended on a higher power, at first I was really just in despair because I felt like this was the last... This is the last option for me, and there was no way I was going to be able to have a higher power. There was no way I was going to trick myself into believing in something that didn't exist. But uh, people said, act as if. Now, act as if was a really interesting idea to me because what it meant was that I had to imagine what it would be like if something existed that didn't exist. So now an act of imagination is really not very hard to do. Believing it is a whole other thing, but acting as if was fun. It's kind of fun. And um, so I did. And I, it made an enormous difference. What happened was one day I was at this party. I was, it was the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday. I think it was like three o'clock. And they had this enormous spread of food out there. And this was not my meal time. And I really didn't want to eat the food, but the food was calling to me. And I was like, you know, this feeling of, you know, you want to go there. You really don't want to go there. Um, I desperately wanted it. I desperately wanted not to want it. That's sort of tearing apart on the inside feeling. And then for the very first time, it occurred to me, this is when you're supposed to pray. You know, I had thought prayer was something you did in the morning, like showering, you know, just get ready for the day. But the idea of actually praying when I needed help, that was the first time it occurred to me. And I just thought, well, if there were a higher power, what would it do for me now? And I had this astonishing moment where I just simply walked away from the table. And like all the attraction disappeared. It was like pulling apart two magnets. You know how when magnets are together, they're really tight and yank, yank, and then you get them a few inches apart and the force is gone. That was the feeling, and I had never had that experience in my life where I could just walk away from the food, not because I was tearing myself away, but because the attraction had disappeared. And I thought, whoa, there is something real here. It's not God, but there's something real, and I want to know what it is. Now, at this point, I read a very interesting book uh, by a neuroscientist and now I work in science, and I'm, things have to be real for me to take them seriously. And I read this very interesting book. And what I learned from that was that um, 
talking to God and talking about God are done on opposite sides of the brain. You, <laughs> this, the part of the brain, the analytical part that talks about God, that tries to understand what it is, has nothing to do with the part that just feels this connection and tries to relate. So that was very helpful to me because I realized that talking to God, I didn't have to know what it was. I could just talk to it. Now, people said that you should write a job description for God, but that did not work for me because I didn't want to create a God. I wanted to discover it because I had a real problem, and I wanted something that was real because I didn't think a God that wasn't real was going to be helpful to me. So what I discovered over many years is that searching for a God that works for you is all it takes to recover. You do not have to know what God is to recover. And for most of my recovery, I really, I really was just searching. And it was actually very hard for me to search because in the beginning, because I had already decided that God can't exist, it, I wasn't really searching for it. I was just sort of, you know, paying attention, reading a little bit of this, talking to people. But I didn't really think there was a possibility. And then it actually was a revelation to me. I wish I could remember the exact details of it. But what happened was at some point I realized that the phrase, God as we understood him, well, first, let me just step back. I thought for the first years of the program that God as we understood him was like a big basket, and everybody's idea of God could just fit into the basket. So it didn't matter whether you were Hindu or Christian. It didn't matter what version of God you had. It would work. But this moment of revelation to me was when I realized that God as we understood him it's not a big basket. It's a challenge to understand. And I had never really tried to understand because I didn't think it was real. And when I realized that I could not work the program, I would never really get recovery until I tried to understand, I realized I had to get rid of my absolute decision that God doesn't exist and think about what could that word mean? What could it mean? This was, like, very emotional for me. I used to wear eye makeup in the olden days. I had to stop. I was crying so much. Whenever I would think about it, my eyes would water, and I, would just, and I didn't know what was going on with me. But I was just searching, and I became open to the possibility that the word God could be meaningful, but I didn't know yet what it meant. So that's where I was. And what I have – thank you. The way I have come to think about God is I don't ask, does God exist? What I came to ask was, could anything exist in the universe as we now understand it that would be worthy of the name God? So I was not interested in the question of existence. I think that that's unanswerable. But is there anything real that is worth calling God? And for that, I had to think about, well, you know, what? What do we demand of God? What's the bottom line? What are the requirements without which something can't be God? So this is the kind of thing that kept me going for years and years. Uh, I thought about it. I spent a lot of time working on it. I think this really helped keep me in the program because it's kind of an endless inquiry. 
And uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, I actually have come to an understanding that works for me. And I can briefly say what it is, but I really want to emphasize that that is not the point. The point is, if your concept of higher power doesn't work for you, it's not your higher power. It's somebody else's. And it's a struggle to find the one that works for you. And it does not pay to adopt somebody else's because it sounds good or because you really admire the person or because your community likes that idea. It's got to work for you because we really need this higher power. I needed it. I needed to have a way that I could enlarge my consciousness because I found that uh, part of the problem for me with the compulsive eating was that my consciousness would zero in on the food so that the food filled my thoughts. And when it did that, there was no escape from it. It was like just having those two magnets stuck together. And what I needed to do was pull back, pull back, so that the food kind of shrank in my consciousness and much more of the universe came into it. And that, that distance um, was really essential for me to, you know, to stop focusing on the food. Um, I, I know it says in the big book... Um, how can anybody believe that the universe began in a cipher and runs on aimlessly? Well, I believe that. I do believe that. I think it's true. I don't know if I use the word cipher, but there are very good theories about how the universe began. That doesn't bother me at all. I, I personally do not believe that this universe was created by God. But I do believe that God is real. And the way that I think about it now is... Let me, let, me, let me give you an example. Okay, so think about the global economy. The global economy is real. It has laws that it operates according to, and people have to study and try to figure out what the laws are, and mainly we don't know what the laws are. That's why nobody understands the economy, and it's such a mess. But the fact of the matter is it does operate according to laws, and if anybody even figures out the tiniest little law, they win a Nobel Prize. I mean, it's that hard. But the economy is real. What is it? It's a collective reality. There is no economy unless there's a lot of people doing a lot of things. But no person has created it. It's real. It's a collective reality. The government is a collective reality. The media is a collective reality. When human beings do things together, collective realities emerge. And they're real. And I think recovery is the same thing. I think recovery is a collective reality. For me, there's something in this room, there's something in this hotel that's going on, that's being generated by all of us interacting, and it's real. And I want to participate in it. I do participate, every single person here. It wouldn't be the same if any one of you were not here. And this is how I now think about God. I think about God as a collective reality that we are generating together, not just in OA, but everybody on earth. And, and what shape does it take? Well, I think, of it as, I think of it as the meaning sphere, basically. The meaning of everything is generated by the collective of us. And concepts like love and God 
and religion and all those things are generated by all of us thinking together and writing and reading. And But these, the meaning sphere is real. We're born into it. We absorb it. We talk with it. This is where we get our language. This is where we get our ideas. It is absolutely real. And to me, it is very godlike because everything that, that matters comes from it. Um, this is my view. Nobody has to adopt this view, but all I want to mention it for is to say that you can find an image or an idea that works for you and that is absolutely real for you. Um, For me, the bottom line of this entire program is that I have to treat myself with love. It's to treat myself with love. Don't push myself to believe things. Don't push myself to buy into other people's ideas. Treat myself with love and respect. I was once at an AA meeting. Sometimes I go to AA meetings because people are so serious. You know, I, I think they take it more seriously because one slip can be death for them. One slip for us is just the beginning of a long, unpleasant spiral. But for them, bam, they can be dead in a weekend if they go far enough. So they take it so seriously. And this guy said at the meeting something that has really stuck with me. He said, um, AA is not learning about how to get sober. It's learning about how to live sober. And, and I needed to learn how to live in a different way. In some sense, the food, the food has been a rehearsal for the rest of my life. The idea that there is a sane way of doing something that's not easy and yet becomes easier and easier with time. I have been able to change so much of myself by trying to work this program. I'm not, I'm not so judgmental. I used to be horribly judgmental of other people, constantly comparing myself and them. You don't really want to know what I used to be like, but I'm not like that. I'm not, I'm... I am not so uh, susceptible to self-deceit. I um, am. I get along better with everybody, and I think the best thing of all is my daughter. My daughter, who was eight years old when I came into this program and is thirty-six now, is just the healthiest, happiest, funniest, just the most wonderful person I've ever known. And I look at her and I think, my God. If I had not gotten into this program, I, I mean, it terrifies me to think what kind of relationship we would have had, if we had a relationship at all, because I was angry. I was blaming everything on everybody. I would yell at her when it really wasn't her. She was a little kid. So there's so many changes that have happened to me, and I really think that at the bottom of it all is trying to figure out how I could enlarge my consciousness to be the kind of person that I really wanted to be, that I dreamed of being, and that I imagined being when people were telling me, act, act as if. Because I never thought about what, it, what did I want to be? What did I, what did I need? I didn't even think of those questions until I got in here. So I am very grateful to OA for that. Do I still have any more time? So briefly, let me just say something on a practical basis, and that is that I, in the beginning, my abstinence was really complicated. Don't do this, don't do that, eat at a certain hour, rah, 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 rah. 
And over the years, I have boiled my abstinence down to one rule of thumb. And the rule of thumb is, uh, I, I mean, I do have three meals a day, nothing between there. But the rule of thumb for me is um, I can't make any decisions about food after I've started eating. That's it. That is it. Any, I plan the meal that I'm going to have when I'm ready to have it or wherever I am. But if I have not thought of putting something in the meal before, I can't add it after I've started eating because that's how binges start. A binge is, an, is a decision to eat something additional after you've already started eating. And that is the one place I never want to go again. So, you know, if I, if I start eating something and I think, oh, gee, I really should have included X with it. It would have been such a great, I think, eh, 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 too bad. Next time, you're going to have a next meal, but you didn't think of it. So that forces me to just think of a meal. And then when I put the meal on the table, because I said this is about love and respect for myself, I ask my higher power to show me how to eat this food in an abstinent way. And I travel a lot. I have to eat in restaurants a lot, and I don't, I don't plan my meals until I'm there. I just pick the most reasonable thing, and then I ask my higher power to help me eat it in an abstinent way. And there's an abstinent way, and there's a non-abstinent way to eat pretty much anything. You can eat carrots in a non-abstinent way. You know, so that's, I, I like to keep it simple. For me, a food plan and abstinence are very different for me, abstinence is the stuff. What's not abstinent has been nailed down below the floorboards, and I am not going there. Food plan, that's my aspiration. Where do I live? In the middle. So I try to eat you know, a beautiful food plan, but I will never go down to those places that are down below the floor. So thank you very much for inviting me. So let's thank our speakers again for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And I'm going to ask you both to come sit up here now. And I will get a chair for myself to sit next to you, and I will ask you questions from the audience. And you can uh, fight over who answers them. Let's see. Okay. Hang on just a second. So the first question from our audience is to either of you. Um, how do you look for God's will without just finding random patterns? I don't think God has a will. I don't see God that way. I think of that... Um, that because I think of God as a collective reality, that we are creating it at every moment. So the higher our own aspirations, the better we live, the better a God that we have. That's how I think of it. Um, if I thought that God had a will and had made decisions about how my life was going to go, I, I wouldn't even know how to behave. I wouldn't know how to make a decision myself. So 
Um, well, that's what I think. What comes to mind for me is, first of all, um, as my life unfolds and as situations come up, I think there's a guidance that from a power greater than me that will help me know where I need to go. I don't believe it's predisposed. But when, when I am having difficulty in, in, how do I put it? If I am bothered and, and having difficulty in doing something, there's something about that that gives me pause. And I think it gives me an opportunity to look at it differently and perhaps go in a direction that is comfortable. So to me, when I'm, when I'm being directed to a decision or something that is going to help me grow, that's going to um, be in my best interest... There's no discomfort, and that's how I look at the guidance I get. I also, I just, I don't know that there's a will, um, but I would like my intentions, which is a word I like better, to be in alignment with the intentions of a power greater than me that's guiding me to what's in my best interest. It's the best way I can put it. Thank you. Uh, Next question. Did you grow up with religion? And how did this shape your religious views now? I did not grow up with a family that sent me to church. I grew up with a family that let me go to church with neighbors. Okay. And I told you I was searching. I went to a lot of different churches and uh, because I was looking for something that I could be part of and it, and it turned out to be institutional. I was looking for what, and I don't know if this answers your question, but it's what comes to mind. So I think this is a direction I'm being pushed to talk. Um, so what I found out for me is religion and spirituality are two different things. And I can live in the spirit. Um, it's interesting I was. I came to a conclusion one time that spirituality to me is the spirit that is me that is allowed to emerge, and that that my higher power resides ultimately deep inside me. And and for me to be spiritual is to be able to be that which I honestly am. So that kind of helps me reconcile between. Um, religion that I was looking for and the spiritual part of me, the spirit that I am today, it helped me to reconcile the difference. I don't know if that answered your questions, but those are the words that came. Next question. Do you believe agnostics or atheists are such because someone ruined their belief? No. Uh, I think that everybody has a right to their own ideas, and some of us see things differently. Um, I personally think that the idea of God is a valuable one. I think that the, the concept of God has been around for thousands and thousands of years, much longer than the major religions today. And 
it has changed so much. In fact, the idea of God that we have in our society today is 180 degrees opposite from what it was when it was invented. In the beginning, the idea of God was um, it was an explanation for the powers of nature. There would be a God of the mountain, a God of the ocean, a God of this, that, and the other thing. So that God was behaving the way that those things worked. That was an explanation for how nature worked. Now, because of science, we've gotten to the point where God has nothing to do with nature. A lot of people see it as living somehow outside the universe and being able to violate the laws of nature. I mean, it's gone completely to the other side. So God is an extremely fluid concept, but I also think it's the most powerful concept people have ever invented. So I think we really do need to give it a meaning that works for each of us so that we can have the benefit of that power in our own lives. My answer to that is I can't even explain to myself why I'm a compulsive overeater and my husband isn't. So I could nowhere get close to even answering that question about why somebody is atheist or agnostic. I just think it is what it is. How do you know when HP talks to you and it's not your own thoughts? Sure. The question was, how do you know when it's HP talking to you and not your own thoughts? And I'll tell you, by the content of what it says. Because if, if there's only one voice in my head, and if it's telling me to do something that's destructive to me, that's my disease talking. If it's telling me to do something that works toward my recovery, that's my higher power talking. That's the only way to tell. Ditto. <laughs> this question is either for Anya or for group conscience. Would it be advisable to go to Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Curves, etc., to slip in promotions for OA or show off body image for attention and then mention OA if clients are interested. Is that ever a slippery slope? No, because that is, that is uh, we are um, not interested in promotion. We are, we are the program. We carry the message by who we are. If we go out there and try to sell OA, then we have completely missed the point. And... I realized it was wonderful that that woman was sitting in the back of the meeting when I needed her, but I asked her. She didn't come up to me and say, I notice you've been having troubles, and she could have because, as I said, sadly, they weighed us publicly. Everybody knew how badly everybody was doing. She never went up to anybody and said that, and if she had, it would have been insulting. So, no, do not try to promote this. When somebody opens the door, get in there. Get in there. Because, because people who need OA, A, they don't know they need it. And B, if they do sort of feel they need it, they're really going to be insecure and uncomfortable about it. And they may just drop a hint like, how do you do this? Or I wish I could, you know, I wish I could lose weight like you. Or I wish. when someone gives you a hint like that, then that's your opening to do a 12th step, but don't push it. OA is for me because I'm a compulsive overeater. 
I have an obsession and a compulsion around certain foods. I have this disease. It would be pretty egotistical, I don't even know if that's a word, for me to assume anybody doing anything else in order to find some relief from, from uh, or find a way to lose weight is a compulsive overeater like me. And generally, um, I have opportunities when I'm with people I know to just express, um, if they're expressing discomfort or something about their eating, I can identify and say, I know what you're talking about. This is what I was like, and that's how it starts. But uh, far be it for me to judge somebody as a compulsive overeater just because they're trying to lose weight. I have the disease. I have that, um, like I said, obsession and compulsion. I can't eat like normal people. God knows I tried. But I can't assume other people trying to lose weight are also obsessive and compulsive about food. So I think that's where I'll leave it. Next question. People suggest HP can be the universe or a doorknob etc., anything outside yourself. But the literature, the literature refers to HP as having a plan for me or a will. How can I reconcile anything but a sentient God with this? <laughs> um, read it one more time. Basically the question is, how can I reconcile a doorknob having a will or a doorknob having a plan for me? You know, there's a lot of uh, ideas and um, expressions in our literature. And um, there are times when, um, even in our literature, I take what I can and leave the rest. And so this is an area where if my belief is that um, there's God's will and there's um, there's some plan, then terrific. But I don't have to believe it just because it's in the literature. The only thing I believe in the literature is it guides me in a direction to find recovery. And it guides me in a direction to find recovery and not no longer be in charge of it, but to trust that out, if I get outside of myself, that there will be um, there will be a way to go. That's and whether it's a doorknob that I pray to and a doorknob I look at or not, I don't have to believe everything I read in the literature if it if it doesn't quite fit what I have now. And I'm not sure if I got it across. Okay. Uh, what is the doorknob on the door of? Yeah, the, I mean, we have to take these things metaphorically. Uh, what keeps scriptures holy is that we can continue to reinterpret them for our time. I mean, if you think about Shakespeare, Shakespeare is still put on hundreds of years, 400 years after he's dead, and 
you could enjoy a Shakespeare play without believing that fathers have absolute right over the mate choice of their daughters. I mean, you don't have to take literally everything that's in something that's written to get something good out of it. And I think um, the big book is the same way. If you think of a doorknob as being um, the door to freedom, then sure, why not? The thing is, it's a metaphor. It's don't take it literally. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that is said about spirituality can be taken literally. It's all metaphor. You have to find the metaphors that work for you. I'm only the moderator, but when I hear this question, what I think of is we're not asked to, we're not asked to follow the will of anything or anybody else outside of ourselves in the steps until step 11. And many sponsors will use the doorknob or the light bulb or the chair to get someone past step two, where we just need to believe in anything greater than ourselves. And then we turn our will over to that thing. But by the time we get to be asking, what is your will for me? The doorknob is in the rearview mirror, and that's way down the road. So my guess is it's just a way sponsors help people get past the first two, three steps. And um, it probably worked for a lot of people for a short period of time. I just suddenly got a thought. Perhaps you'll like to hear it, perhaps not. But um, the third step to me, it was really important when I heard turn my life and my will over to care of God. To me, I could do that. I couldn't turn my life and my will over to God. I don't know if you understand the subtlety of it, but it made a big difference to me for what it's worth, the care of. So I can go on and do what I need to do and not keeping worrying about that and keep focused on that and not have any other direction. So. Oh, this one is for Anya. Did you, did you keep acting as if until you formulated your concept of God, which seems like it took years? Did it ever lose its effectiveness? Wow, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, yes. Yes, I still act as if. I still don't re- The thing is that I can't... <clears throat> in my concept of God, I can't know what it's like. I don't think of it as a loving being because I don't think of it as human I mean, the economy is completely made of humans, but it's not human. And I think of God that way, too. It's not human. It can't be male or female or, you know, love people or think this, that, or think. It's something mysterious, but it's real. So for me, and it's just I say this just because of who I am, for me, it's much more important to have a God that's real but mysterious than to have one that I can explain in theological, um, you know, enormous detail, but know that it isn't real. I mean, that seems to be the choice to me, and that's what works. So, and that's that's what I'll say. I am reluctant to pray to a higher power for fear I will be let down. I have prayed before, even for general things like serenity, but prayers aren't answered. How can I pray and not be afraid I won't be heard? Are you giving this to me or are you answering it? 
I'm putting it between us to see, if, to see which one of us wants it. <laughs> not that I don't want it. The question is, have you or have you not been heard? And there's a saying of the ancient sages that if you rise from your prayer a better person, your prayer has been answered. And to me, the essence of the, the purpose of prayer is to figure out what is it that I really want? What's my goal? Where am I trying to go? Because I don't think that God knows what I don't know. I think of God, and forgive the language, I think of God as an unbullshittable witness to my thoughts. Because if I were an unbullshittable witness to my thoughts, I would behave a lot better. But I'm very bullshittable. I bullshit myself all the time. That's what got me into this problem. I, that's what denial is all about. That's what, you know, making all these excuses. I don't know if you heard that song I sang the other night, but I had this song about how when I had a whole a tray of pastries, I had a separate excuse for each one. And that's how I used to be. But if, but God to me, um, <laughs> Now, I shouldn't say God thinks this way. The way that I think of God as the meaning sphere is I place myself in my connection to it. Every one of us has to be connected to it all the time, whether we know it or not, because that's how we think. We think with it. And whenever I let my consciousness move into that sphere, it enlarges, it expands, and I see things that I didn't see before. And I, be, and I become more able to to detect my own bullshit. And this is all it takes for me to recover. This is just my experience because I don't know what to tell somebody. But I do know that my experience with prayer is the more I ask for specifically the more invested I am in the outcome, the more invested I am in that it show up the way I'm asking for it. My experience is if I ask for direction and I ask for, and I, and I say out loud the things I'm afraid of and, the thi- and, and, and I ask out loud, this is what I do in the room I sit in. I don't even know that I'm praying to anything. I just ask out loud. I ask out loud, and then I say to myself, uh, or not say to myself, but I, I go to let go of the results and go see if it shows up. It'll show up in ways that I wasn't asking for it to show up. So for me, that's about trust, and it's also about practice, and it's also about experience. I think the longer I've been in this program and the longer I've worked the steps and the longer I've developed some um, recovery and change, that those things that I used to worry about or be disappointed in, I didn't see them the same because I often saw them that they were tied into my expectations. And I'll tell you what, um, when I'm invested in the outcome and tied into the expectations, nothing ever works out the way I want it. Ever. So that's what I got to say. It's important to pray for something that's possible.
something that your higher power actually has a connection to. I mean, so suppose suppose you pray to win the baseball game, and the other side is also praying to win the baseball game. This is ridiculous because God does not control who wins the baseball game. It's just not, that's just not the point. As I see it, uh, God does not control individual events. If somebody gets sick, that's not because God made it happen. God is a collective reality. What God controls is our, so is our collective response to illness. It's big. It's big. And so if my prayer brings me more into connection with that big thing that I want to be part of, then that prayer will work because I will be helping it to happen. And the more that I focus on what really matters, the more likely it is that it's going to happen because my own, you know, life energy is going to go into making it happen. Last question. This one is also for Anya. If you see God as collective action, do you have a sense of... I should put my glasses on for this one. Ah, if you see God as a collective action, do you have a sense of goodness in that collective action? If not, how do you trust to take direction from it? If so, what's the sense of the goodness? I believe that people are basically good. I believe that most people, when they do not act in good ways, they're acting against their aspirations. They're acting despite their aspirations. This is why we have consciences. This is why our consciences hurt. There are very few people who are really evil and have bad, who really want evil for the rest of the world. So because I see God as arising from all of us and really arising from our aspirations more than anything else, I think the dominant, it has to be dominantly good. And that's just how I see it. I mean, if I had had a horrible life and everything had ever gone wrong for me, maybe I wouldn't see it this way, but, but it hasn't been that way uh, for me. Um, I really trust that we have good aspirations, most of us, 95% of the time. And if we really trust our aspirations and we try to figure out what they are, are we asking for something that we really don't care that much about, but other people have made us think that we should care about it? Those prayers are not going to come true. This is part of the challenge of a God that works for you. It's got to be a God that brings out your aspirations, that makes you be the person you want to be. Because why, don't, why would we want to be anybody else? So, um, you know, obviously the question of good and evil is this big philosophical thing, but um, I don't worry about that at all. I just feel that if I move in my own consciousness into this larger meaning sphere, I don't know what else to call it, um, I find that I become more the person that I admire, and that's really where I want to be. Let's thank our speakers one more time.
And it's now time to close this session. Please stand and join hands as we close with I Put My Hand in Yours.